So this morning, if you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn in the text with me, please turn to Psalm 123. Psalm 123. And as you're, as you're doing so, as you're turning your Bible, let me just remind uh, you uh, just real quickly, in case you are, have been here and, and, and maybe you're visiting with us, it's your first time here, is so what we're doing uh, in the beginning of the year in the preaching ministry here at Old Cutler. We're looking at this, this group of Psalms, and it's 15 Psalms that go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And, and these psalms are, are called the songs of a, of a sense, the songs of a sense. And so they're collected together in this series of songs. Now, the title of this, the songs of a sense, it, it sort of gives us an indication of, of how they may have been used. I mean, no one knows for certain. But, but one of the ways that these songs or psalms could have been used is as the, the Jewish pilgrim of old was making his way to, uh, to Jerusalem to worship the Lord that this collection of songs would be used as sort of a, a song book of the Bible, if you will. Psalms are a song book, but these are special little song book. And they would use these to sing on their way, to meditate upon on their way, to read and reflect on along their way, as they made their way to the temple to worship God. Now, now with that, as we've, we've thought about this, our own sort of thinking about and usage of these psalms, we've considered that to inform how we, in, you know, sort of embrace them. And, and a way to think about them is these are songs that can draw you closer to God, right? Uh, these are songs that can teach you more about what it means to follow him and walk faithfully before him. And with each of these songs, we have been sort of thinking through that. What does it look like to be a, a pilgrim of God, if you will? Um, someone that is, is sojourning and making our way where ultimately to the new Jerusalem, ultimately to uh, glory where we will be with him. And so this is the fourth of those psalms. It begins in 120. This is Psalm 123. And so I want you to follow along as I read God's word. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of, of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And this is God's word. May the Lord bless uh, its reading. May he bless its preaching. And of course, as we always pray, may he bless all of us. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive his word this morning. So I'm going to begin today with a few questions that I'm going to ask you that I already know the answer, right? But I'm going to ask them anyway, because in asking the questions is a way of sort of connecting us to the passage. So here are the questions. Uh, do you ever get sad? Um, do you ever get angry? Do you ever get upset? Do you ever feel lonely? Uh, do you ever feel um, beat up or attacked or put upon, right? And, and I know the answer to that. I mean, the answer is obvious. All of us have felt that way at one time or another. I can imagine there's some of you who are here in the sanctuary today, and you're feeling one or maybe more of those emotions even now. And so why do I begin by asking you those questions? Well, I begin by asking those questions because I, I think they reflect something that the Psalms do for us, that the Psalms actually speak to the range of human emotions, if you will, Right. In fact, John Calvin said something very interesting about the Psalms. He described them as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. I mean, that's a, that's a helpful way of thinking about them, an, an, a, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. 
It means that whatever may be going on in, in our hearts and our lives, I mean, in one way or another, the Psalms speak to that. And I think the Psalms speak to our joy, right? Uh, the Psalms speak to those moments of celebration. Uh, the uh, Psalms speak to all of those good things. I mean, Psalms are ways that the Psalms express that. But the Psalms also do something else. I mean, the Psalms speak to uh, those, those more negative sort of feelings we have, right? It's very honest about those things and, and about our hardship and our hurt and our pain and, and, and the difficulties that we experience in life. The Psalms help us to express pain. But the Psalms do more than that. And this is one of the things that's so great about them is that they not only help us to articulate pain, which is helpful in and of itself, but they help us to take that pain, whatever that may be, take those, those struggles, whatever those things may be, and to turn them and to turn them towards God. And in fact, to, to look up to him. You know, some have described this Psalm as a Psalm of the eyes, which is interesting, Psalm of the eyes, right? And there's, a, there's an obvious reason for it, and you've read the text, and you've probably already seen it, and we'll look at it more in just a moment. It's because of this usage of the word eyes. Uh, the word eyes is used four times in the first two verses, and then it also calls us to look up, because this is what the psalmist is doing. He's telling all of us, whatever those, those experiences and feelings are, and certainly when those feelings are things coming against you or oppositional to you, that we take those things and we look up to him, as opposed to doing what? Well, what we're so prone to do, which is to look inwardly, right? I mean, navel gaze, I'm very guilty of that, right? So a problem comes and I internalize it, go in, that's right. Or to look down, right? To sort of live in this sort of hopeless, depressed state. And, and any of us can be guilty of that. I remember one time in my life where I, I, don't, I don't know why I did this. I guess it says something about my personality at the time. But I literally walk around all the time with my head down. I wouldn't run into poles kind of head down. But I would walk, I mean, I did it so often because I, I just didn't handle and, and wasn't able to effectively know how to handle the things and the pressures of my life that people saw it and people would actually come up to me and like, why do you always walk with your head down? And it was the reason why I finally kind of came to, what in the world is this? But it's this, this sense of being kind of overwhelmed by the things of life. I imagine some of you here feel that, whether you walk with your head down or not. What this psalm helps us to do is to take it to him to look up to him. And what it does is it tells us that when we do look up to him, there are three ways that we need to do that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That we need to look up to him submissively, that we need to look up to him expectantly, and thirdly, that we need to look up to him urgently. Okay? Submissively, expectantly, and urgently, okay? Now, the first of these is this idea that we look up to God submissively, which is incredibly important because what, it, what it's understanding is this, this sort of basic idea that he is God and we are not, that he is God and that we belong to him, that he is the creator and we are his creatures, it's acknowledging something about our rightful place before God. Now, note the text again, beginning in verse 1, where the psalmist says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now, notice the, the language of lift up my eyes. You've heard it before, right? You've heard it before just here, just a couple of weeks ago. Because it's almost the same wording as we saw earlier in Psalm 121. And if you remember in verse 1 of Psalm 121, there the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. 
from where does my help come? Now note what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 121 is he's lifting his eyes up. And I, I, I sort of alluded a little bit to even what we're going to talk about today in that psalm. But in Psalm 121, when he lifts his eyes up, what he lifts his eyes up to is he sees the hills. And when he sees the hills, there's something in the hills. And, and we talked about how it could have been, you know, danger. It could have been the high places. It could have been any of those things. But he calls the, the, the traveler who's using the psalm to look up at the hills and go, I need help. Where does my help come from? And then he answered it by saying, my help comes from the Lord, right? The psalm today, in Psalm 123, in verse 1, is much more direct. The psalmist immediately, I mean, there's, there's no mention of anything prior to this. Now, problems come up later, but there's no mention of anything prior. He just, he turns, and he lifts his eyes up to God. And he describes him as, note the text, the one who is enthroned in the heavens. And so what are we talking about there? The one who is enthroned in the heavens. Let's first of all say what we're not talking about. That idea of being enthroned in the heavens is not in any way a language that should, should limit or constrain God. Because he's, he's not saying there, the one who's enthroned in heaven, like God is there in heaven and he has no power anywhere, anywhere else. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is the one who rules all things from heaven. That's what he's getting at. He's talking about the one who is sovereign, the one who is supreme, the one who is majestic, the one who is mighty, Right? One of the great descriptions of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is this description. And just think about this for a moment. Jesus is described there as the ruler of all the kings of the earth. That's his present station right now. That he is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. Because of his work, because of his salvation, but what he did on the cross. Because of his resurrection, because of his ascension, he's now at the right hand of God. And he is the ruler of all the kings of the earth, which means something very important. It means that all the kings and all the presidents of the world, they may have a limited rightful authority given by God. But Jesus is, to use the language of Lord of the Rings, he is the one that rules them all. Right? That's who he is. The one that rules them all. Our God is the one who rules all. He is our king. So therefore, posture is meaningful in this because what posture helps us to understand is we look up, which means we don't look sideways as if our God, our God is equal to us, nor do we look down as if our God is less than us. We look up to one who is greater. And I think that does, if you think about it for a moment, it challenges I think some of the things that happen in aspects of evangelicalism where we almost treat God as if he's something in our hands that we can mold to make him do what we want him to do, right? That he's, he's that kind of, of God, that he's sort of malleable for us to treat however. And, and it's, it's very clear that that's, that's not who he is. He's to be magnified. He's to be lifted up. And what that means is that we are to submit. We're to submit. We don't conform him to our will. He conforms us to his. Okay? And all that he is doing, sovereignly doing, is the conforming of us to him and to his will. And that's one of the things that we have to remember when we look up to him. It sort of postures us and puts us in the right place so that we turn to him rightly, which is seen very clearly in the second verse. So note what the second verse goes on and talks about, this idea of, of surrender and submission to him. Here's what it says. Behold, as the eyes of, the, of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. 
So he's telling us, here's how we are to look to God. And note what he's saying. I mean, this is very clear, isn't it? It's not just that we look up to God, but we look up to God as servants. And, and literally, I mean, what he's talking about here are slaves is what he's talking about. So he's saying here, basically, that we look up to God as slaves or servants look up to his or her master. That's what he's saying. That this is who we are, right? We're his servants. And we look up to him, okay? Knowing that he is God and that we are not, okay? And I think this is important to understand. I think in a, in a, in, in a, in a world that, that we live in, and, and one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to do with some of these sermons is to make sure that in our world we are always thinking biblically as opposed to the way our world is trying to cause us to think, right? And so we, we live in a world today that is it's big on, on fighting against oppression, right? And, and there's, in and of itself, so please don't misunderstand me, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. People that are oppressed, they... they need people fighting for them. People that are oppressed, they need to be free. People that are oppressed, they need justice. All of those things are true, right? But because of the, the world that we live in and because of the way that it has wholly rejected God and rejected God in all kinds of ways, here's what our world basically says. Our world basically says that the beginning of so much of the oppression in our world comes from what? God himself. And from Christians. And from the church. And so the fighting against oppression is fighting actually against God. If we throw, here's the, here it is. If we throw God off, if we, if we throw the church off, if we throw Christians off, if we throw those things off, then here's what's going to happen. We are going to be free. But the truth is, rejection of God is the very source of oppression. You know that, right? The very source of it. It's the very reason why we have evil. It's the very reason why we have injustice. It's the very reason why we have oppression. It is because people don't understand and get God. Therefore, here's what the case is. What he's basically telling us here, the psalmist, is that we need to understand that we are to be servants of or slaves of the living God, and that is actually the only way that you and I can possibly be free. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that everybody on planet Earth is a slave of one or two masters. You are either a slave of God and righteousness through faith in his son Jesus Christ, or you are a slave of sin. Now, the question for all of us, and certainly this is true for all of us who are Christians, you need to understand that you are a slave of God. And in that, what do you find? Freedom, joy, hope, life. And so the first thing is you look to him submissively. So you, you go like, Lord, I'm yours. I belong to you. Whatever you ultimately want, that's what I want. I am yours. But then with that, it's the second thing. That we look to God expectantly. Expectantly, right? And so think about these two things and how they hold together. Because it's a sense of, of kind of understanding, okay, when I turn to God, I know that God is sovereign. That he, he reigns and rules from heaven, right? That he is enthroned in the heavens. So we know something of God's power, of his might, that he is God, Okay? 
So then we look to him expectantly, then that has to include something else. It has to include this notion that, okay, we look to him expecting God to do what? To do good for us, right? That's what we expect, that God will do good. So we go to a God, and this is all of us who know him, we go to a God who is mighty and powerful, and we go to a God who is good. But here's part of the trouble. It's when we're hurting and struggling for an extended period of time. And we've called out to him, and there seems to be no immediate resolution to it. Or for a long time, there's no resolution to it. And then our minds start playing tricks on us. And you know the way our mind works in that regard, right? We start going, okay, well, all right, I, I think I belong to him, and I'm struggling with all these things. So, so then that has to mean something like, well, maybe, maybe God isn't sovereign. Or maybe God isn't good. Because look at my circumstance. What the psalmist shows us here is that we not only have to hold on and embrace that God is sovereign, we have to also embrace this idea that God is always good. And so we keep going. We keep turning to him, right? And so that's what we see. If you notice the text, the last part of verse 2, and then the first part of verse 3, what does he say? He says, till, which is, can be translated until. So what he's saying is, so our, our eyes are turned to the Lord our God, this magnificent God. Our eyes are lifted up to him. And then he says, until, until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. You see how he keeps going, right? Now what this helps us to understand is that when we talk about being expectant of God, like we come to him expectantly, and part of that, of, of expecting God to do good things for us, is that we persist in pursuing him. And is that not what the Bible talks about when it talks about prayer? I'll remind you of one of Jesus' parables. It's found in Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8, and it's the parable of the persistent widow. You remember that parable? And that's the parable where the, where the widow, Jesus tells the story of this widow, and she keeps going after the judge for justice. Over and over and over until he grants it, right? And he grants it, and he basically says, I had to grant it because he was going to wear me out, right? But what Jesus uses that parable for is to make this, this very simple point. It teaches us... To keep on praying and to not lose hope. Not lose hope. Which means that as we look to God expectantly, there has to be the sense of looking to God persistently, but also looking to God with, with a certain set of eyes. And those, those eyes are, are eyes not of, of despair and not of hopelessness and then not of giving up, but, but looking to God with, with these eyes of hope. That we believe he is this kind of God that is good. That we believe, as the psalmist says, that he is a God who is, what does it say? Merciful. Three times he says it, right? I'm going to look to you to you. Have mercy. And then he prays. Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy on me. You see the repetition? It's all over this psalm. And the repetition is important because it leads us to think, okay, all right, this is a psalm, repetition of the eyes, a psalm of the eyes, but it's also a psalm, repetition of mercy, a psalm of mercy, which means that as we look at this song, it's not only saying our eyes need to be lifted up, it's saying to us over and over again, our eyes can be lifted up to him for mercy. Why? Because he is a God of mercy. He is merciful. 
Now, what does that mean? I mean, it means these, maybe some other words that you know. It means God is gracious. It means God is kind. It means God is compassionate. It means God's favor is always upon his people. Do you know that? You know, A.W. Pink has this great definition of mercy, and I love it because it, it helps to center us rightly. Can you put that on the screen so everybody can see it? A.W. Pink says this, mercy denotes the ready inclinations of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Let me read that one more time. Mercy denotes the ready inclinations of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Now that's saying two really, really important things. The first thing that definition is saying is that God is readily inclined towards us, okay? That he is inclined for good towards us. But the other part of it is also really important that we understand to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Now, both aspects of that we have to understand if we're going to constantly look to God and constantly look to God expectantly. And the two parts of it are this. God is merciful, but what's the other side of it? That we are, we are needy, we are broken, we are fallen, right? It's, it's the only way that we're going to constantly go to him for mercy is when we realize how much we need it. Do you understand that? How much we need his mercy. You know, one of the things that's intriguing about this psalm, and, and there's another thing I'm going to tell you in a moment as I wrap it up, but one of the things that's intriguing about this psalm to me is that the psalm goes on, in the last part of it, and it talks about opposition and things that the psalmists and others, the pilgrims who are using this, are facing. If you think about that, it, it causes us to sort of wonder, okay, if they're facing these difficulties and facing this trouble and facing this contempt and scorn, which we'll get at in a moment, then why doesn't the psalmist cry out to God for justice? For justice. Why not? You know, it's, it's and, and so let me make sure, again, because I'm pushing some buttons here, and I'm going to make sure you don't misunderstand. I mean, God is a God of justice. It's clear. Jesus, in that parable, the persistent widow, one of the ways he ends that is saying, you know, you need to understand that God is going to give justice to his elect. This world certainly needs justice. There are people in this world that need justice. But why is it that the psalmist doesn't cry out for it? Because he understands something. He understands his own brokenness. And he understands his own need. And he understands, and this is true for every last one of us, right? That all of the goodness of God, all of the benefits of God, all of the blessings of God, and this would include God's justice, it all is a result of God being merciful to sinners like us, right? Do you, do you understand something that is true before the standard, the bar of heaven? That we are all in one way victims, but we are also all in another way victimizers? I will tell you one of the worst imaginable things a human being could do, especially if he doesn't know Jesus, and it will be this. To stand before a holy and righteous God and demand justice. Why? Because that demand will put that person 
in hell. You hear me? The only way, brothers and sisters in Christ, and those of you who may be here who don't know Jesus today, the only way that there is any good from a holy God towards a sinful creation is because this holy God is inclined to meet us in our misery. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. Which means something very important for you and me. Your struggles may be from the outside or your struggles may be from in. Your struggles may be because somebody's hurting you or your struggles may be because you're hurting yourself. Your struggles may be because someone has done something unfair to you or your struggles may be because in your own sinfulness you are doing wickedness to yourself. And here's the thing that you and I need to always understand and always know, not just simply because God is just, but because God is merciful. He will be there for you. Do you know that? He will be there for you. Now this idea of turning to him, looking to him submissively, turning to him, looking to him expectantly means a third thing, that we turn to him not only submissively, not only expectantly, but also urgently. Urgently. And the urgency, it derives from the problems. It derives from the struggles. It derives from the stuff we're in, right? And this is true in this psalm. So if you look at the last part of it, verse 3, last part to verse 4, he says, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now think about what he's saying here. And again, it's repetition. And it's, it's interesting the way the psalmist is writing here because he starts out with the eyes. Four times he mentions the eyes. Then he goes to mercy. Three times he mentions mercy. And then he goes to this idea of more than enough. And twice he mentions this. He said, I've had enough. What he's talking about is this. You know when you are in some kind of thing with somebody, right? And a lot of times this happens with our children, especially when they're teenagers. And we're going, I'm about right here right now. This means if you give me any more, my head's going to blow off, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm right here. I've had more than enough. I've had my fill of the contempt and the scorn of this evil fallen world more than enough, Lord. Now, we don't know specifically what he's referencing. And I think this, this sort of openness to what he's referencing, can it's, it's this psalm that you think about Israel and its history and, and how many times Israel could have pressed into this psalm and used this psalm to help them, right? One of the specific times that this could have happened, if you know the story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall, right? You remember that story? And you remember when he was rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, you remember, the, and this was specific. I can imagine Nehemiah standing there reading this psalm, singing this song as he's working, because he was getting the contempt, right, and the scorn and the mockery and the laughter of those enemies of God and enemies of God's people that were coming at him, right? It's this notion. I've had more than enough. Now, why do we cry that prayer, I've had more than enough? Because we need to. You know, we, as, as, as Christians living in the world that we live in today, and, and as, you know, sort of this movement of, of the post-Christian world, of the, the foundations more and more being lost, so that there's, there's no sense of even peripheral engagement with the, the things that the, the faith has held to. And with that movement, I mean, one of the things we are seeing, and we're seeing it more and more, that there is this kind of contempt and scorn that comes against the church and comes against Christians because of things we hold to, 
things the Bible teaches, things that we believe, things that we're not going to budge on. Now, why, why scorn? Why contempt? Why are those kinds of things? Well, why would it have been with Nehemiah? Why would the scorn and contempt have come against Nehemiah? Because what they were attempting to do is stop him. Stop building a wall. Don't do it. Now, when that scorn comes against the church and against Christians, it's the same thing. It's stop. Conform to us and our values and our ways and what we think is right. Conform, conform, conform. And I'm going to pour contempt and scorn upon you until you do. Now, why do we cry out? Because to stand strong, to hold firm, to remain faithful, to keep our commitments to God's word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in the midst of that, what do we need? Help. Strength. God. So that we can stay committed to him. And in addition to that, not respond sinfully, which it is easy to do. Now, here's something, this is the second intriguing thing, and I'm going to wrap this up when I take you here. Here's the second intriguing thing about this psalm. It is, it's not resolved. You note that? It's not resolved. What do I mean by that? I mean, okay, here's a psalm. And you have the beginning, lift up your eyes, you have the reason, because God is merciful, and then you have the problem. The problem. Contempt and scorn coming at us. But then it ends. And you don't have the resolution on the other side. You don't have it saying, and God was merciful with us. Or, and God provides for us. You don't have any of those things. Now, we know it's implied there, and we know that's true, but it, it's sort of this, it just comes and it just ends, and I, I think there is a reason for that. It is because this, all of this reality, it's, it's never just resolved. In other words, I can, I can say it like this. We live day in and day out in this song. In this song. Until Jesus comes again. We live in this song. In other words, every day of our lives, there's a sense in which, okay, we have to lift our eyes up to him because we know he's merciful. We know he's going to be merciful to us. And so we cry out to him. And we live in a world where there is all of this, this contempt and scorn. And the question that I have for us as believers in Christ, and this is an important question to ask. It is, do you feel what the psalmist feels about this broken and sinful and fallen world? In other words, can you say, I've had enough? Or do you say, hey, kind of, all right, not even thinking about it. All's cool with me in this kind of messed up, broken world and just sort of going along, right? Which are you? Which are you? Because saying, I've had enough, is saying, I'm not going to give in to it. I'm going to live in a way that I reflect Christ. 
I'm going to be salt and light. I'm going to be a witness. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to stand strong. I'm not going to let my friends push me around. I'm not going to let people bully me into things I don't believe. I'm going to stand on the truth. I'm going to be gracious and loving, but I'm going to stand on the truth because I've had enough. But it also, and here's the thing that you need to understand. This, this isn't as we live in this psalm. It's not just a call to faithfulness. It's a, an appeal to the future. See, this is the thing you got to see, this appeal to the future. Because what it really is, this appeal to the future, is the psalmist is saying, and you and I, when we say, I've had enough, what are we longing for? We're longing for something different. We're longing for glory. We're longing for heaven. We're longing for the new heavens and the new earth. We're longing for the end of the book of Revelation, where it says, and I would encourage you to make this part of your daily prayer. When you've had enough, you pray these ways, this way. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We are reminded, Lord, of just all that we, we face and all that we live in, but we're also reminded that you're with us in it. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to be truthful, men and women committed to Christ and his word, and help us to be loving. Lord, work through us. Help to settle our hearts on what's true so that we begin to see the wickedness of evil and long for your holiness and work towards that end, but also understand, Lord, that finally and fully it will only come when our Savior, our Lord Jesus, comes to wrap all things up. And we want that day. And so we do pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Let's stand as we join in singing our